Okay. Let's start off with prayer. Father, we just thank you um, for times like this when we can get together and we can learn more about who you are and about what you're doing, uh, not only through us and in us, but in the world around us as we see uh, as we see the world fall into chaos, Lord, we know that you are in total control and that we should seek you uh, deeper in a more meaningful way. Lord, I pray that you would uh, be with each of us as we go through this, um, this section about your works and decrees. And Lord, help us to uh, gather some understanding, but Lord, I just pray that you would prompt us in our hearts to uh, have a desire to seek you even, even more, even deeper as we talk about your providence, as we talk about creation, and so on. Lord, I pray that you would, uh, that you would be in the midst of this. Lord, that you would uh, keep me from error. And Lord, I pray that you would uh, just be with each of us as we, as we spend this time together. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. It's locked. Just in time. Good morning. morning. So today, in, uh, as we continue in the book, Essential Truths of the Christian Faith by R.C. Sproul, we're going to cover a section called The Works and Decrees of God. And under that, there are six, six parts that we're going to talk about. And actually, these are six separate chapters in this book. So as Brent and everyone has said before, this is an extreme high-altitude flyover of this information. And by all means, it's not exhaustive. As a matter of fact, as I was looking through this stuff and trying to figure out the best way to tackle it in the time that we have, um, it, it, you know, it occurred to me that when, you know, like we're, the first thing we're going to talk about is creation. There are whole ministries that are devoted to creation. And um, they can't exhaust all of the information and knowledge that we can get from Scripture and also just by looking at God's creation. Uh, God's providence, I mean, that in and of itself is so grand to think of how God works in all things. You could, yeah, you could never in a lifetime exhaust uh, your study of providence and so on, miracles, the will of God, uh, covenants. Each of those things are so deep and so broad that I hope that as we go through this, we understand that this is just a stepping off point, and hopefully it will prompt us to dig deeper uh, into understanding God. You know, just as Paul said, that he essentially sought to know nothing other than Christ crucified. His desire was to just know Christ and just know him deeply. I hope that's also uh, something that this, this helps us to do, too, is to seek after him more fully. So, let's start off with creation. Uh, creation, and I'm, gonna just, I'm just going to go through the outline that R.C. Sproul does in the, in the book. And so the first part would be that everything in time and space has a beginning. And we can see that in Genesis 1. And uh, Genesis 1 is a pretty long chapter. I'll let you guys read that on your own. Um, we don't have the time. But I do love quotes. And so I like uh, giving quotes of great theologians and people of the past because they say profound things. And you might be surprised that my first quote comes from an atheist, uh, David Hume, if you've ever heard of him. He is quoted as saying this, I never asserted so absurd a proposition as that something could arise without a cause. So even an atheist, even someone who claims that there is no God, sees in creation 
that there had to have been a cause. Stuff just doesn't happen for any reason, for no reason. And everything doesn't come about from nothing. That's an absurd, an absurd thought. And David Hume himself, an atheist, you know, would agree with that. And I think is you read through secular science, you can see they really struggle with the idea of how everything came into existence. But as Christians, we know exactly how that came about. Uh, something exists now, therefore something must exist that has no beginning. It's talking about God. God exists outside of his creation. Uh, creation is bound by laws, right? By time and by space and and all of those laws have to function, but God exists outside of those laws. And when we think about God, we think about a God, we think about a being with no beginning and no end. Uh, he even claims that of himself in Scripture. And the Bible clearly requires. This is another quote by Wayne Grudem. If any of you have ever, you know who Wayne Grudem is. Uh, I have his systematic theology, which is uh, I really am so very thankful. Uh, that God has used people like Wayne Grudem to be able to help educate us to understand God more clearly. He says, uh, the Bible clearly requires us to believe that God created the universe out of nothing. Before God created the universe, nothing else existed except God himself. And um, I, I always find it interesting, I love apologetics, I always find it interesting that uh, atheist question or the agnostic's question to us as Christian is, okay, well, if God created everything, then who created God? Uh, that's a, it's a, probably a good question, but it's from the wrong perspective. God, nobody created God. God is self-existent. Uh, he claims that when he says that he is the I am. Um, and we, we, also have, we also have good arguments for that, like, for instance, the cosmological argument. Uh, when people ask this, we say that everything had a beginning, had a cause. The universe had a beginning and therefore the universe had a cause. Albert Einstein, uh, a great thinker, super smart, came up with the uh, theory of relativity, right? And in his, in his mathematics, he saw, he saw initially that everything pointed back to a beginning and that bothered him because he couldn't reconcile that. And so he added a flaw purposely, knowing that he did it in order to be able to reconcile that in his own mind. And he called it the cosmological constant. As a matter of fact, Einstein's original motivation, and this is his own words, that his original motivation for adding this cosmological constant to his field equations in general relativity was to keep the universe static. Because if the universe didn't, wasn't eternal, then you had to come up with a reason why it exists. So even Einstein saw that the universe had a cause, that there was a beginning, and before that beginning there was nothing. And so how do you come up, how do you come up with that? And science still can't come up with that. Um, John Calvin says, therefore, his meaning, like Moses' meaning, is, is that the world was made out of nothing, hence the folly of those is refuted who imagine that unformed matter existed from eternity. The idea that the universe existed from eternity is even ridiculous in secular science. They know that that's not a possibility. And there's, a, there's many reasons for that that, of course, we can't talk about. But then let's go to Scripture and see what Scripture says. Scripture says in Psalm 33, 6 through 9, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their hosts. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps in storehouses. 
Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. And also in Psalm 104, verses 24 through 26, it says, O Lord, how manifold are your works. In wisdom have you made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. Here is the sea, great and wide, which teems with creatures innumerable, living things both small and great. There go the ships and Leviathan, which you formed to play in it. Jeremiah 10, 12. It is he who made the earth by his power, who established the world by his wisdom, and by his understanding stretched out the heavens. And then in Hebrews eleven three, By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. The Bible testifies... God's word testifies to his, his act of creation all through. And I think it's wonderful that we can have faith in this great God and his power. And based on his power, we're going to move to the next one, which is God's providence. Uh, the concept of divine providence is not generally accepted in our day. And it used to be, back in the day, um, the idea that God was in control of all things was something that was proclaimed. I think we can look back in historical writings and even, uh, you know, maybe not necessarily Christians, but um, everybody had some sort of view that God or a greater power was in control of all things. But now things are attributed to, to fortune or fate or chance. In light of divine providence, there are no impersonable, impersonal um, forces such as fortune, fate, or chance. Uh, I think the big, the big thing that I hear nowadays, uh, unfortunately, is karma. Oh, you know, this is happening to me, or this happened to this, this group of people, or this happened to this nation because of karma. Well, just like fate and chance, karma is not real. It doesn't exist. I mean, it is true that... You know, we reap what we sow, but that's not the definition of karma. I have a few quotes from some uh, people who weren't Christians that believed in fate through the years. One of them is Plutarch. He says, fate leads him who follows it and drags him who resists it. But we know that it's not fate. We know that it's God's providence at work, right? Napoleon, obviously not a strong Christian man. He says, there is no such thing as an accident, it is fate misnamed. And that's not true. There are no such thing as coincidences, but God's providence at work, right? Not fate. Uh, Marcus Aurelius says, accept the things which fate binds you, and love the people with whom fate brings you together. But do so with all your heart. You know, nice sentiment, but there's no such thing as fate or chance. And a, my favorite one is kind of humorous. Groucho Marx says, man does not control his own fate. The women in his life do. <laughs> although, although possible, fate still doesn't exist. We, we need to attribute the working of all things to God. God works all things, right? So providence includes God's work of sustaining his creation. We just talked about creation, you know, and in six days God created all things, but he didn't just step away and let it run its course. You know, there are a lot of Christian evolutionists out there who believe that God created the universe and then stepped away and allowed evolution to do what it was supposed to do. 
And that's not the case. God, through his providence, upholds and, subs- and sustains his creation. Everything uh, moves about because of God's power and his control. As a matter of fact, R.C. Sproul, one of his uh, quotes that I love the best is that not a molecule in the universe moves from one place to another unless he ordains that it should. God is providentially in control of everything. Providence refers chiefly to God's government of his creation. A.W. Tozer says, God dwells in his creation and is everywhere indivisibly present in all his works. He is transcendent above all his works, even while he is imminent in them. That's not to say that God is in all things. We are not uh, Buddhist or Hindu. We don't believe uh, God is the universe, but we believe that God is outside of the universe, but is constantly, constantly manipulating the universe in order to bring about his goodwill for his glory. God is in control. This is... Like I said, this this stuff isn't uh, this stuff isn't uh, the easy stuff. So I mean, not that we have any questions, but before we keep going, any comments to that or? Is there a? This is kind of a rabbit trail, and I don't want to go down other than just say if you know it off the top of your head. But is there a scripture that talks about God protecting us from you know from complete disaster, um, holding back um, evil to? keep our world from being destroyed. I mean, sometimes it feels like we're on the edge of total destruction. You know, the way some countries approach war. Well, then I would ask you guys, can you think of any passage? I cannot think of a specific passage. Well, um, I think it's 2 Thessalonians which refers to God, um, that there is a <clears throat> dynamic towards evil in this world that he has suppressed. That's that, that's well, what that, I'm that, that when he unleashes the break that he's put upon this world, that that's when the Antichrist will show up. So yes, things could be a lot worse than they are right now, and, and they aren't because God is stopping it from being worse than it is. Right. And, and and also on on that note too, all of Scripture lends itself to show that God is in control of all things. As a matter of fact, there's a there's a passage in here in a minute out of Acts uh, 2, 22 through 24 that um, might help with that. But before we get there, let me let me keep going. Oh, yeah, go ahead. Just in Colossians where it talks about, you know, for, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him and he's before all things and in him thing, all things hold together. This idea that he—it's Christ who is who is holding existence together—and um, and I think to his point that like there is a restraint, there is a there is just in that sovereign power of, of, over all of matter and spite, space and, and time um, that that all things hold together in Christ, um, and so but there is a day coming when judgment will be. The restraint will be removed. Yeah. I mean, the elements, I mean, to, yeah. the, the Bible talks about the elements just like, you know, just being mixed together and like just, you know, the world being basically undone. Yeah, thank you. Um, yeah, that, thank you. I, I, I probably should blame myself, but I, 
I just say that I lack the gift of being able to recall scripture immediately. <laughs> I think it's probably because I don't, um, I don't devote myself to memorization is probably the problem. So, um, uh, The Westminster Confession of Faith says this, that God, the great creator of all things, doth uphold, direct, dispose, and govern all creatures, actions, and things from the greatest to the least by his wise and most holy providence, according to his infallible foreknowledge and the free and immutable counsel of his own will to the praise of the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, goodness, and mercy. So God does what he does for his glory. And we, thankfully, reap the benefits of his providence. Providence includes something that's called concurrence. If you've heard of concurrence, and if you haven't, I'll tell you what it is, by which God works his divine will through the wills of his creatures. Um, one of the best examples of concurrence, and this is according to Ligonier Ministries, uh, whom R.C. Sproul started, says one of the best examples of concurrence in Scripture is seen in the death of Christ. God ordained the crucifixion, and evil men acted to bring it about. Did God cause evil? No. But he allows evil to take place for his good purpose. And ultimately, everything that he ordains, whether evil or good, comes about to bring glory to him because he, in his providence, works all those things together to accomplish that purpose, right? He says, he goes on to say, God ordained the crucifixion by evil men, um, and both were necessary for Christ's death to take place. But God had the good intent to save his people and exalt his son for his sacrificial obedience, while the men who killed Christ had the evil intent to simply do away with him. God is sovereign over evil, which gives every evil an ultimate purpose. But he remains entirely good. So, once again, God does not do evil, but allows evil. Not, not just for some arbitrary purpose, but God works all those things together for his purpose. And his purpose always is for the good. Uh, some passages of scripture to kind of reflect on if you want to look at those and we don't have time to read. Job 38, 1 through 41. Daniel 4, 34 through 35. Let me know if I'm going too fast for you. Uh, Romans 11, 33 through 36. And then in Acts 2, 22 through 24, I'm going to go ahead and read that. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite, and fore, definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. So even as Peter is preaching, he's explaining to them, listen, this was God's plan. God has no plan B. God's plan always works out. But God used these evil men in order to accomplish his plan. All right. Signs and wonders and, and stuff. That's the next section is miracles. So just remember, providence, pretty deep subject. Um, I'm hoping this will just plant a seed and a desire for you to dig deeper into to these aspects of God. As a matter of fact, um, a little book that I love is a book by A.W. Tozer called The Knowledge of the Holy. And 
uh, kind of along the lines of this book, maybe a little smaller, and it just deals with the attributes of God. And um, I really like it because it's, it's pretty deep, uh, even if it's one of these books, like these, these chapters are one or two, or maybe possibly three pages long at, at the most. But uh, in Tozer's book, it's the same way. You deal with uh, omniscience or omnipotence or omnipresence. It, Tozer deals with those in a couple of pages. But at the beginning of his book, and I, this isn't an exact quote, I'm going to botch it, but essentially Tozer says that th what we think about God and how we think of him, whether high or whether base, will determine every decision that we make in our lives, whether as a person or as a people. Um, godly people, the deeper we think and the deeper we know God, even though we can't know him fully, we can know him more and more. The more we know God, the, our decisions will be influenced by our knowledge of him. So as we go through all these aspects, you know, like next week we're going to start talking about Jesus Christ. As we get to know him more, the more you know him should reflect the decisions that you make in your life based on your knowledge of God. And uh, Providence is a big deal. If we, if we know that God is in control of all things and God works all things together for good for those who call according to his purpose and love him, right? I mean, then the decisions we make or the circumstances we're in should not change the direction we go, right? Uh, there's a, uh, just popped in my head, there's a Christian song uh, that I don't even know the name of, and I don't even know who sings it, but he's, uh, in the song he says that if your eyes are on the waves, essentially you're sinking, but if, or if, you know, if your eyes are on the storm, then it's overwhelming. But if your eyes are on Christ, you know that he will always take care of you in the midst of whatever's going on. So the more we see God and the more we know him, the better the decisions and the actions and the directions of our lives. All right, miracles. The Bible speaks of signs, powers, and wonders. Uh, I thought about this um, as I was going through this book, and I love, uh, and I, of course I will go through exactly what R.C. Sproul says because it's grander than I could think. But um, in light of current um, Pentecostal ministries, they focus on signs and wonders and miracles. And signs and wonders and miracles are supposed to point towards the person and work of Jesus Christ and to glorify him and to glorify God. And, and uh, I, I would love for that just to be the end of that and we can move on, but I'm going to go ahead and go through this information anyways. But. All right, the, Bob, the Bible records different types of miracles. Common miracles uh, are common, but nevertheless, uh, they're impressive events. I remember... Um, Years and years ago, when I was trying to learn about God and learn about miracles, there was a statement and a definition that said that miracles are defined by acts of God that violate, the, super, or that violate the natural laws that he put in place. Um, unfortunately, that's not true because God does work miracles within the laws that he has created in nature. And common miracles are, are, um, are an instance of that. For instance, we speak of the birth of a baby as a miracle. Um, uh, as, uh, in doing so, we honor God for the intricacy and beauty of his creation. Uh, if, if you've ever, of course not you guys, have many children, but if you've ever seen a baby or been around um, the birth of a child, it's, it truly is a, a miracle. I, uh, what, what is not a miracle is when you find that parking place at the mall. That's not, oh, it's such a miracle, I got this. But that's, of course, that's not a miracle. But, you know, 
the birth of babies, uh, we, we stand in awe of the majesty of the cosmos, right? Creation, we talked about creation a little bit. Obviously a miracle. Uh, but creation itself is bound by God's laws, right? Uh, is God working through secondary means of natural laws, which are themselves, of course, creations of God? In Scripture, we, need, we read of God's working through secondary means at most... Um, uh, like, like the star of Bethlehem. Let's use that as an example. You think about this star that appeared at the very right moment to guide the Magi to exactly the place they need to go. What was the star of Bethlehem? And we really don't know. Was it, a, was it an exploding star at just the right moment? Was it a comet that was going across the sky? We, we, don't, we don't know exactly, but we do know that God used natural means to perform a supernatural event that had an outcome that worked towards his divine purpose, his providence. Uh, Miracles uh, refer to acts of God against nature also. You think of the parting of the Red Sea, Jesus turning water into wine, or raising Lazarus from the dead. Uh, Those are all examples. Uh, Some scripture to look look at, if you want, is uh, Exodus 4, 1 through 9. Uh, 1 Kings 17, 21 through 24, John 2, 11, and then in Hebrews 2, 1 through 4, I'm going to read that for us. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a right retribution, a just retribution, how shall we escape such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. You understand that God testifies to himself through these miracles. They're not, um, as some would claim today, they're not some personal work. They're not done by an individual for just the purpose of somebody being healed or somebody having some sort of, especially somebody's having some sort of financial benefit. But any miracle or any thing that God works, whether by his natural laws or apart from his natural laws, is for the purpose, although we may benefit from them, is for the purpose to bring in glory to himself. And we need to keep that in mind. And I think when we have that viewpoint it keeps God first, and, and, that, and that's the point. It's God first, always God first. Um, so why does God do miracles, and why would he do those things? Well, let's kind of talk about the will of God, what that means. Uh, we're doing pretty good. we still got 15 minutes, and this is the, this is the short stuff, so we're good. Um, those passages that I'm throwing out to look at later, if... Um, I know you're writing them down over there, and if you're not getting them all, let me know. I, I got them right here. As a matter of fact, you can just have my notes after it's over. I'm not shy. Okay. All right. <clears throat> so there are three meanings of God's will, and R.C. Sproul outlines them as his sovereign decretive will, his perceptive will, and his will of disposition. Um, I've heard them labeled differently, but we're going to go with what R.C. Sproul labels them. Uh, Hard to argue with a guy with that big a brain. So 
Um, God's sovereign decretive will is the will by which God brings to pass whatsoever he decrees. This is hidden to us until after the fact. Uh, we see, oh, I see that God's will was done here. Wasn't really, didn't really understand what was happening at the time, but now I can see what happened. We see this all through scripture. Um, God sovereignly ordains everything that comes to pass which includes terrorists flying planes into buildings, what Hamas did in Israel. Not that God thinks those things are good, but since he is um, you know, all-powerful, omnipotent, he could stop any of those things at any time, but he allows them to play, take place. Why did he allow those things to take place? We don't know that right now. We're not seeing the end result of that. But maybe at some point in time, God might reveal the reason for that, and his will would be revealed later. So this is his sovereign decretive will. <clears throat> uh, we can be sure that nothing happens over which he is not in total control. He must at least permit whatever is to happen to happen. Once again, like I said, not a molecule moves from the right or to the left anywhere in the universe unless God ordains that it should, unless he gives it permission to do so. In Romans 9, 14 through 18, we read this. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I have raised you up that I may show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. God's will was accomplished. I'm sure as Pharaoh during this time was increasing the burden on the, on the Israelites, the Israelites were thinking, could be thinking, where is God in all this? Why isn't God stopping this? Why is God allowing this to take place? Why has this happened? We look back later and we say, oh, this was all for the purpose to glorify God and to bring about God's purpose. So he uses his decretive will to do so. We good on that one? Okay, perceptive will is God's revealed law or commandments, which we have the power to violate, but we do not have the right. Does that make sense? Think of the Ten Commandments, right? It is his perceptive will, or his, I've heard it, claimed his moral will, that we should do these things and not go against them, right? We have the power to violate that. We have the moral will to say, you know, I will have another God. I will have an idol. I will commit adultery. I will, you know, bear false witness and so on and so on. We should not do that. We have the power to do it, but we don't have the right. For example, it is the will of God that we don't steal that we love our enemies, that we repent, that we be holy, etc. Um, but we're not. We have the power to violate that. Uh, there's another one that's called the will of disposition. And I like this one. It says it describes God's attitude or disposition. It reveals what is pleasing to him. Uh, in 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 4, it says, First of all, then, I urge that supplication, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people 
for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing inside of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. It's God's disposition that we lead peaceful lives and that we, you know, you know, we are, that we are those kind of. It's His disposition that all people would come to the knowledge of Christ and be saved, right? Not everybody out there does that, and not everybody gets saved, of course. But that is his will of disposition. Um, God's sovereign permission of, of human sin, by the way, is not his approval of human sin. I think it's important to note that there, is, uh, there has been, throughout all of Christi- Christianity, uh, through history, and even today, a, a group of Christians that, that believe in this antinomianism, this idea that, you know, Christ fulfilled the law, so therefore I don't have to follow the law. I don't have to be sinless. I can sin. I'm, I'm freed from condemnation, so I, can, I have the freedom to do whatever I want. And that's not the case. Just because God, uh, his sovereign is permission of human sin, does not mean that it's, it's okay for us to do. All right, covenant. We can do this in ten minutes because this is pretty easy. Covenant is different than a contract because it is not between two equal parties. Biblical covenants follow ancient Near East suzerain vassal treaties. And what that is, is they were made between a conquering king and those who were conquered. And covenants, by the way, are not negotiated. I work for General Motors. We were on strike. And the UAW and the company came together and they negotiated a contract. That was not a covenant. It was between two equal parties, but covenants, especially God's covenant with us, are not equal parties. Um, although there are some out there who would like to think that, that's not the case. Um, and I think when we look at that, I, that, that example of ancient Near East treaties where a conquering king and those conquered, I think that's a pretty good illustration of a covenant for, uh, that we have with God. Um, and a covenant... A covenant has different parts, you know, like a letter has uh, an opening, and then there's the body of the letter, and there's a conclusion. Covenants are the same way. Uh, There's a preamble, and it identifies who the sovereign is, and we're going to use Exodus 20 for this. In verse 2, he says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. He's saying, I am the Lord your God. And then there's the historical prologue, which says, this is what I did for you. And in in that same verse, he's I brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery. So I am God, and I did this for you. And then we have stipulations of the term. We can think of like the Ten Commandments. These are stipulations. Um, we can actually put in the whole law, right, as stipulations. And then there are, um, there are oaths and vows. There are curses and blessings. And in that we'll see... Uh, for instance, like the stipulations, look for the Ten Commandments, that's Exodus 23 through 17. And in, that, in, in the stipulations, we also find the oaths and the vows and the curses and the blessings. Exodus 25. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquities of the father on the children, fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to those 
to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. So there's stipulations, oaths and vows, curses and blessings, right? Um, Exodus 20, 12, honor your father and your mother. Why? So that you can live long in the land that your Lord, the Lord your God is giving you, right? Uh, then there is the ratification of the covenant. Uh, ratification and biblical covenants are always sealed in blood. Always. Whether it's the old covenant, the new covenant, covenant of works, covenant of grace, um, animal sacrifices, the death of Christ on the cross. Uh, in biblical times, covenants were ratified in blood. It was customary for both parties to the covenant to pass between dismembered animals signifying their agreement to the terms of the covenant. Um, I have a long list of biblical passages, but I want to get to the next sex. So let me give them to you after, after we're done, okay? All right. The last one is covenant of works. This is really important that we go over this because, like I said, next week we're going to start uh, talking about Jesus Christ and who he is and what he has done and and so let's talk about this. God entered a covenant of works with Adam and Eve. Genesis 2, 16 and 17 says, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For on the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So this was a covenant of works, right? It was a covenant. God and Adam and Eve, they were all not equal partners. And God said... This is the way it's going to be. And they were required to follow that. All humans are inescapably, inescapably, inescapably related to God's covenant of works. We still are required to be perfect before God in order to stand before Him in, ju stand before him in judgment and be justified, right? I mean, that's, that's a requirement of every human being. It's just that there's no human being that can do it. So all human beings are violators of the covenant of works. A single sin is enough to violate a covenant of works and make us debtors who cannot pay our own debt. Um, check out Romans 3, 20 through 26. So Jesus fulfilled the covenant of works. Just so we can understand. Because then... we. We talk about the covenant of grace, right? So Jesus fulfilled the covenant of works. The covenant of grace provides us with the merits of Christ by which the terms of the covenant of works were, were fulfilled. So Jesus satisfied that first covenant, right? Those of us who are in Christ don't receive condemnation for our violating the covenant. Instead, his merits are passed to us if we are in Christ. So the covenant of works is still there. And then now we are under a covenant of grace. All right, the covenant of grace provides us with the merits of Christ by which the terms of works are satisfied. Uh, in Galatians 3, 10 through 14, I'm going to read that. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith, right? But the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. 
Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone hanged on a tree. So in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Was all that? Everybody knows everything about creation, providence, miracles. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, no need to even read your Bible today, right? <laughs> so... Once again, hopefully, uh, as we go through all this stuff, what it does is it prompts us to dig deeper into who God is and to what his word proclaims about him, about who we are in him, um, about the world around us, uh, the person of Jesus Christ, and um, that's kind of everything for today. I was going to comment about the will of God, like uh, understanding the different circles of his will. So, you know, God's sovereign, overarching will, like, you know, what he, what he, his purpose from the beginning of time will happen. Um, but there's also, as, as you mentioned, I think it was his decretive will, or like the, the things that he's decreed, you know. So the example that I think of is, and that I've, and I've had explained, is like God's sovereign will from all of creation was that... Christ would die for humanity. But he also has the will that he has told, you know, like he told Adam and Eve, you know, he, he gave them a command, do not eat of this of this of this fruit. And yet they disobeyed that will. So it was his will that they would obey. They disobeyed. The fall of humanity happens. It was his will that, you know, that thou shalt not murder. Yet the Jews murdered. Christ, right? So his sovereign will um, is not foiled or, or, or um, violated, and it never can be, but his will of decree, I guess that's what he was saying, was the decree will, well, the, the commands that he's given us, the Ten Commandments, the things that he's told us to do, um, that, that can be violated, and that's, that's obviously where sin, sin enters in, but it's always very helpful to understand, like, how... Christ after the cross, you know, it was God's will that his son should die, and yet it was not his will that, that any man should murder, yet God uses uses the, the sinful choices that men have made to accomplish uh, his purposes, and yet he is without sin himself, as we said. Yeah, I mean, I think, I find it to be um, probably a mental exercise in futility, but when you think about, I think about Judas, for instance, and it was God's will that Judas betray Christ, right? It wasn't his, it wasn't his moral will that Judas do betray Christ, right? So Judas had to do this, but he shouldn't have done this. And then you start thinking, in, in, in the realm of God's providence, could Judas have not done this, right? right? I mean, we, think we, we look at that passage. It's very and, clear from Scripture that he is accountable. Absolutely. For what he Right. It, it says that it, would, it would have been better that he would have never even been born. Right. You know, and yet, like, so and yet he there, had there, to there, do there, it. Yeah. There is, there is this mental gymnastics. You have to think, like, how does this, you know? Right. Um, That's where headaches come from. <laughs> right. Yeah. You know, just like the passage we read in Romans about Pharaoh. You know, God created Pharaoh for this purpose, 
He didn't cause Pharaoh to do these things, so Pharaoh is accountable for his sinful actions. Um, but yet, yet, could Pharaoh have chosen differently in God's providence? I mean, it's, that's, a, that's a strange question to try to answer. I mean, I, there's no answer to that because it's, a lot of this is in the mysteries that, yeah. you know, that we can't understand. But. Yeah, there are it's things that are beyond our ability to Right, because then we would slip into um, we would slip into falsehoods like saying um, determinism and stuff like that, and that's that's not how it is. I mean, we we do have the ability to choose between right and wrong. Yeah. But as sin- of, if, that there's a balance of God's sovereignty and human free will. Right. And how that works together is it's a complicated. It is a complicated thing. mystery that's yeah, that mystery. Uh, we fail to be able to not only comprehend, but explain. But no man on Judgment Day can say, God, you destined me to do this. That's, right. And, and I am free from judgment. No, that's, that's not, that's not going to fly. Right. Yeah, that's hard to, uh, definitely hard to explain to people who have those well, that's why deeper there's, questions. There's, there's tomes written about the little guy. <laughs> you had three patients. 